I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas, brought to you by Red Wing, episode 43. Merry Christmas, Mr. LaCour. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you, James. And Merry Christmas to everybody out there listening to us. Everyone out there listening to us in the future. Yes, in the future, because we're recording this one early. <laughs> we had to record this one early because I am on the road. Uh, I'm 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 talking to myself from the future as well. Um, I'm on the road in Michigan, and so we're recording this one a little bit early. And and let me throw in the intro. I'm James Hahn the second from TribeRocket.com. We are a sales-driven marketing firm. We help people tell the right story to the right people at the right time in the marketplace, addressing real problems in your messaging so that you can connect in the marketplace. What about you, Mr. LaCour? Yeah, Mark with modalpoint.com. We're an oil and gas market research company. We basically figure out who wants to buy your stuff and why they would buy it. We have to give props to Mr. LaCour on this one, though, because this is the top 14 stories of 2015 oil and gas. And there's nothing like this out there, is there, Mark? No, this was actually a lot of work uh, to compile because there's so many stories of last year of 2015. And it, to figure out the top 14 was some work. And the interesting thing is, James, you and I are the first people to do this. There's nobody else out there doing this. Find a hole in the market and fill it. That's all I'm saying. Little tip for everybody. <laughs> Even with content, you can, uh, I don't know. Let's see. Let's see if we can get some SEO juice, a little Google juice going. But let's talk about the stories because 2015 was a a roller coaster ride, um, in in some in some people might think it was more like the uh, the demon drop we used to call it back at right. um, back at Cedar Point. If anybody's been up there, America's roller coast, where where things just dropped off the face of the earth. If and we we preach a lot about how that's only one sector, but a lot happened. And why don't you just give us a little a little recap before we jump into the stories? I mean, what are your thoughts as we as we round out the year? Yeah, so 2015 was an interesting year. Uh, we entered the year in a low crude price market. We had a lot of uh, political marketing type changes. I mean, for the first time in the history of the oil and gas industry, um, we have um, an invasion of technology where we've never seen it before. Uh, we have uh, some of the uh, independents actually doing unbelievably well. We thought we were to have an enormous M&A activity season 2015. It did not happen, although we had some very notable acquisitions. Um, and then we're we're entering we're leaving 2015, entering 2016, um, very optimistic. One of the things that's unique is that for the first time in in my lifetime, and probably for the first time in, in recorded history, we are entering a long-term su- sustainable hydrocarbon abundant world. So this is like some some you know life changing stuff going on right now in our lifetime. All right, let's kick it off. Number one. U.S. over or is it is it one to no? Nah, well, <laughs> let's just go. Let, no, no, in no particular order. In no particular order. All right. U.S. overtakes Russia as top oil and gas producer. Report says. Who would have ever thought we're outproducing Russia? Right? <laughs> that is such. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Hats off to our independent frackers for kicking butt. Right. We're producing a lot of liquids, a lot of crudes. We're producing a lot of gas. There's no shortage of that. Even in this low crude price environment, we have overtaken Russia as as one of the top producers on the planet. 
which we haven't had that distinction since I think the early 70s, late 60s. And it's gonna be we're gonna be there for a long time. Think how cool that is. We have abundant, cheap energy. We can export it. Um, because of the cheap energy, you know, we can bring manufacturing jobs back here in the US. Look at the prosperity that it's brought. Um, look at the impacts to the environment. We're switching from coal to natural gas. I mean, it's just it's a wonderful thing. So nothing against I have some really good friends in Russia, but take that, Russia. Take it. <laughs> Um, it came out on June 10th, only two days before my birthday. So that was a pretty good birthday present. And ro- uh, U.S. production rose to a record 1.6 million barrels a day last year. And and did Russia stop? I mean, who? who nope. What's another angle that you could look at? This is like is like did they okay. pull, did they pull back or what's going on here? So think about an IndyCar race. Think about the very last of the Indianapolis, very last lap of 500. And you always have that one guy that's been in the top three or four that has saved his engine and tires and fuel, and he kicks butt. He passes everybody up. That's what we did. We kicked butt and we passed everybody up. They didn't decrease production. We overtook them and passed them. America wins. America wins. That's the story for right there. (laughs) Number two, EPA finds no widespread drinking water pollution from fracking also came out. Uh, in June, June 5th. So this was a big story. I remember, I remember talking about it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I try not to talk politics, so I'm going to try to stay away from politics here. But basically, uh, in the last 10 years, the EPA has had a very left leaning, right? Not very pro oil and gas. So um, they went out and did a lot of research, spent a lot of taxpayer money to come back and say, you know what? You're right. Fracking doesn't contaminate drinking water. They couldn't prove it anywhere in North America or anywhere in the U.S., so, um, of course, the environmental activists jumped on this and said it was wrong. Well, I'm sorry. No, it's right. Fracking is a very safe, uh, very um, efficient way to stimulate a well, and it does, not cause, um, it does not cause water pollution. So get off of it. Including over 950 sources of information, published papers, numerous technical reports, information from stakeholders, and peer-reviewed EPA scientific reports. Yeah, it's 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 done, folks. Right? It does not pollute groundwater. Quit spreading that myth. Quit trying to scare people, and be okay with the fact that we are introducing prosperity because we've invented a new technology. That's it. And let's let's pause for a second because we know that there there could be plenty of people listening to this show for the first time right now. So if they are listening to the show for the first time right now and they they have heard about this fracking thing and this is the first time they're hearing that it doesn't why doesn't it and how does how does that work yeah so the way i explain it so uh, you and i live in houston texas right so everybody think about if you live in houston texas sincerely do you worry about water pollution in miami florida do you james no why not why don't I worry about Miami? Yeah. Be- because it's it's over there and right. I'm over it's here. So, right. It's so far away that it, even if they had water pollution over there, it wouldn't affect your water, right? Yeah. All right. So now you're thinking about that distance horizontally. Flip that same distance vertically. Fracking takes place so deep, so far away from the groundwater that it cannot contaminate groundwater. And that's what people don't get. They think that you're fracking at the same level of groundwater. Groundwater is usually within the first couple hundred feet. Fracking takes place at least a mile. So you have a mile of rock between you and groundwater. So the distance is so far that it physically just can't contaminate. Um, Now, if there's a problem with the casing, 
that goes through the groundwater, then yeah, you can have an issue. But that, that technology has come so far, so long. Um, so that's why it doesn't contaminate. That's why fracking doesn't contaminate. It's not at the same geogra- uh, geologic level. Right. And that's a really good point, just to stress for any, anyone that hasn't heard this before. It's not the act of fracking that actually creates the problem. It's going to be either a casing problem or it's going to be moving frac fluid at the surface level. Yeah, on the surface. And if you, if you think about water contamination in the U.S., let me give you some t- statistics. So for 2014, because the numbers aren't here yet for 2015, but for 2014, there were zero. Let me repeat that. Zero. Easter egg. Zero. Proven cases of fracking contaminated drinking water in the U.S. During that same time period, there was 1,719 re- reported cases of agriculture contaminated drinking water. So if you're really concerned about contaminated drinking water, go talk to the farmers and the ranchers, not the frackers. Well said. Well said. I don't want to start a war with the farmers, though. <laughs> although although um, Alan Gilmer did write a pretty great article back in the day about how big oil, quote unquote, or how oil, the oil business. No, actually, it's a flip that around. He didn't use the word big oil. He said how how the oil industry can learn from big agriculture's marketing tactics. And the main point being that when you see farming uh, sort of marketed and advertised, you st- when, even when you hear the word farm, you think of, of some grandfatherly figure on a red truck with a red, red barn and, and the, in the tractor and all of that. When the truth is that they are major, major corporations. Yeah, they're factories. They're factories, right? But and, and I'm not beating up on farming. Our, our our ability to feed our people is better than anybody on the planet. We can do it cheaper and more effectively than anybody because we've looked at farming as a factory and realized the benefit. And that's what needs to happen to fracking. We need to look at the benefit, and it's already moving down the road to be a factory. Yeah. Well, it, to to continue the point though. To flip that around is is the is the point that ninety percent of oil and gas that's produced in America is actually produced by small independents. Yeah. Versus the inverse of the factory of the factory farm. So maybe maybe you and I can can work on that a little bit in twenty sixteen in terms of, of of helping people realize how many small businesses are, are affected, including yours and mine. Yep. Um, so all right. Number three. U.S. clears $70 billion merger between Royal Dutch Shell and BG Group British, rival BG Group. Yeah, so um, first thing, that's uh, 47 billion pounds because we grabbed a, a, a U.K. article, which is about $70 billion U.S. dollars. Um, so this is a major merger. Um, Shell, this is not new. Um, Shell has brought the BG merger in front of its board at least four times that I'm aware of. Um, this was the right time for Shell to do it. BG was devalued. Shell seized the global growth in gas. By this acquisition, Shell basically has turned itself from an oil and gas company to a gas company and has opened up markets in Asia Pacific that it could, did not have access to. So this is a very shrewd, very strategic acquisition by Shell that's just going to benefit everybody. I got to be honest. I really didn't know anything about BG before this happened. So can you give me a little background on BG? Yeah, so British Gas, um, their U.S. headquarters is right down the street from where you live, right there in the Galleria. Really? Um, yeah, great company. Um, concert started off in the U.K. They were a gas company. They've, they've always been a gas company. They've dabbled in, in liquids and oil before, but um, they've grown a very large um, 
not only uh, production of gas globally, but also market consumption, especially Asia Pacific, uh, where there's a huge and growing um, uh, demand for natural gas. And so Shell had trouble entering in the Asia Pacific, especially with gas. And so Shell also saw that in the future, gases could be a, a, a fuel that everybody has high demand for, which is which is true. So Shell made the decision to go ahead and pull the trigger and acquire BG so they could acquire not only their gas production, uh, their gas liquefaction, the gas transport, but also their markets around the world. So this is this is a great move by Shell. I want to ask you a question about the other side of, of the acquisition. And I could probably put the dots together pretty easily if this was a tech company or something like that. But one... Well, let me let me just put it in terms of that that I understand, and maybe you can help me understand it a little bit better. But if I if I was a tech startup and I got acquired by Google, for instance, um, a really good example would be Instagram. Instagram was bought by Facebook for a billion dollars, and they had thirty seven employees. That they won, obviously, in that in that case because they you know thirty seven people and a billion dollars is pretty good. What's the benefit to BG in being acquired? So BG, even though it was a large gas company, did, was not a super major. <laughs> now BG has access to all of Shell's portfolio, right? So all of Shell's um, gas production, all of Shell's market, especially Europe, which BG had a small piece of, Shell had a majority here in the U.S. Um, the advantages are a lot BG agreed to be acquired by Shell because BG realized that uh, unless they agree to this, the their odds of them having long-term high shareholder value was small. So basically a shareholder said, you know what, we'll trade BG stock for Shell stock because that's a better um, stock to have in our portfolio. Got it. So it was it was it was a strategic move on their part in terms of, you know what, if we if we try to go toe-to-toe with them, our stock price is gonna drop. So yeah, and Shell well paid a premium. In fact, some some analysts out there said Shell paid too much. I don't agree. I think Shell paid. A, I think this is a very strategic use of Shell's uh, capital um, to to acquire somebody that had a market that Shell just would have spent a fortune trying to penetrate. Interesting. All right, number four: one in four oil gas jobs could be lost in 2015. Yeah. So let me let me do a little preface back here. This is a, a, a article written by the Canadian press, and what they're really talking about is Canada, Alberta, um, that whole area. That's the oil sands, right? So there are a lot of jobs that have been lost up there. You know, this is the end of 2015, and it probably is one in four jobs. Globally, if you look at upstream of service companies, that number is probably more like one, um, one in every seven, seven and a half, or something like that. Um, I, I think the bloodbath is over as far as layoffs, except for the subsea manufacturers. I think um, 2016 is just going to be horrible for them. I don't think they're going to climb back out of the hole until probably 2018. But from an employment point of view, you know, the Camerons and the Ackers and the Gene Oil and Gas and FMC, they're, they're not huge employers. Um, but Canada is really hurting because their oil is expensive. It's expensive to get out of the ground. It's, it's probably the second most expensive. So, um, you know, this is a good article showing the impact of these low crude prices on a business that was built upon a hundred dollars a barrel oil. Interesting that you brought out a Canadian source because of the fact that we talk so much about how there's four segments and you go where the money is. And you and I talked briefly about a back and forth I have with, with a man on LinkedIn, with one of our, uh, of our listeners on, on LinkedIn and he's in Norway. And so I asked him that question and they don't have refineries in Norway that they can go and do and go and work in. And so what does that look like internationally 
you just got to go find another industry to work in for a while. Yeah, un unfortunately, the U.S. is one of the few places where all four segments are more or less equally represented. Um, the North Sea, Norway especially, for years, all they did were upstream, right? They were able to get that Brent crude out of the ground, so their whole world is built around that upstream part. They basically import refined goods, uh, refined fuels. They never built the infrastructure, the refineries and the pipelines, because there was no need to. Um, it was a mistake long-term-wise. You know, you and I talk about this all the time, that regardless of what you do in the oil and gas industry, you need to be aware of all four segments, because something's going to happen that's going to drive one or two of the segments down, but then the other two benefit. And there's countries out there like that. Look at the Middle East. The Middle East is an upstream-centric world. They have, and they're they're trying to correct it frantically, but they they have no refineries to speak of, right? They have no infrastructure in place other than the way to export the crude. So um, this is what happens when you build your industry around one segment. You know, if you build your your uh, um, economy around one segment of the industry, well, if that segment collapses, so does your economy. You're, you're much better off to have some diversity in place. And, you know, you're looking in China and the Middle East right now, they're frantically building refineries, knowing that that will help uh, in the future in this low crude price environment. I was going to follow up with a question of saying, well, practically speaking, how do you what do you do? But whatever skills you have in the oil field, especially when it comes to engineering, are very transferable. Yeah, and like these uh, Canadian, these Canadian oil workers, so actually the roughnecks, they could easily transfer those skills. And the, you know, there's a lot, a lot of pipeline growth um, in the north part of the U.S., close to the Canadian border. They could easily transfer their skill sets into being pipeline technicians. Right? It's still the same thing: turning valves, um, joining pipe together. You know, um, making sure nothing's leaking, um, doing work safely. It's you know, they just have to change their mentality, quit looking for work in upstream, and look at the midstream guys. Right, right, and then and then if you're if if you're in one of those economies that's that's based around only one segment, I I guess you're not stuck either though because you just have to broaden your horizon even more and say what skill set do I have? Yeah, and, and Canada is actually pumping a lot of money right now in export terminals, both LNG crude. Um, so you know your job, your skill sets in the upstream side are transferable to that too, and that's an area in Canada that's growing. Well, I'm not only thinking of Canada. I'm thinking because we have listeners in over 110 countries around the world, right? Right. And and, and so I'm I'm just trying to think in terms of of, of across Europe, uh, Africa, anywhere where there's really oil and gas, and you know, because because this I don't know, just this is sort of hitting me all at once right now that we've spent a lot of time in 2015 talking about the four segments and you go where the money is, um, but not everybody lives in a country where you can't that listens. Can lives in a country where you can make that transition that smoothly, but they could they but they they could by changing the the philosophy or just seeing the the skill set that they have, um, find something that is applicable to them. Yeah, unfortunately, it depended on the government. You, you these the actual employees, the workers may not have a choice. If the government has decided not to put money into pipeline or into refineries, then they they just don't exist. And you in Africa, you see countries out there that have zero refineries, and then you see other countries like Nigeria, whose refineries are shut down for years, and their new presence like you know what we need to diversify, we need to fix this, and he is, and those refineries are up and operating now. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, we've spent a lot of time on that one and we've got a lot more to go. So let's get to this over here. Schlumberger to buy Cameron in 14.8 billion oil services deal. We talked about this um, a couple episodes ago by now, but this is a big story of 2015. 
Yep, this is one of the top stories of 2015. Slumberjay made a smooth move. They did a very good job of keeping it quiet. I had no inkling, and I should have because they did a joint venture with Cameron called One Sub C a couple years ago. Um, just, just brilliant by Slumberjay, right? They're in the service business. They realized a few years ago that subsea services is something that was a growing market. So they got into that by doing the joint venture. And now by buying Cameron, they actually are now a manufacturer. So they're making trees and blowout preventers and wellheads and chokes, um, you know, manifolds, pipelines, all that stuff that, that actually goes in production. So Slumberjay is diversifying its portfolio. It's just a brilliant idea. Um, and it's it's not cannibalizing any of their own business. They're basically buying a market that they don't have right now. Um, Cameron's going to benefit too because Cameron has grown a lot lately. But Cameron um, it, it need, has a need for some efficiencies in their business. They've they've grown, but there's still a bunch of political silos. There's still a bunch of huge inefficiencies. I mean, I could tell you some stuff that you would say no way. And Slumberjay is going to come in. You know, Slumberjay prides itself on being a technology leader in oil and gas, and they're going to clean a lot of that stuff up and they're going to streamline it. So. You know, when the merger's done and when everything is integrated, this is going to be a really rock and rolling company. And I, I have to bring out one line right here because this is something that you say often on the show about Modal Point believes it's the bottom. And apparently you are in, in good company there. This is a sign that Schlumberger sees a market bottom. Yeah, of course. they would If they didn't, they would have waited till they, we hit rock bottom. Yeah, so – that didn't really spread. You think that's going to spread rapidly at the beginning of 2016? Do I think that 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 the, the rock bottom mentality? You know, um, so we're we're recording this at the end of 2015. We're headed into 2016. I, you know, I predicted in 2014 that 2015 was going to be a major merger and acquisition year, the biggest one ever, and it didn't happen. And I think that perfect storm of devaluation, companies that had a lot of cash, I think it just could pass. Um, it, it didn't come to fruition. And I think a lot of it didn't come to fruition, not based on facts, but based on perception by the investors because the, the money's there. It's sitting on the sidelines. So I think we're going to continue to have mergers and acquisitions like has always happened in oil and gas since its beginning. Do I think in 2016 we're going to have this huge rush? No, we, we missed that um, in, in 2015. So I, I don't think it's, it's – you know, I think we're going to have a normal amount of M&A activity, maybe a little bit higher than normal, but nothing stupendous. And they, they paid a 56% premium. Is that a good amount? Too much? Too little? Depends on who you talk to. So if you're a Slumberjay shareholder, you say yeah because your stock devalued because of that premium. <laughs> right. If you're a Cameron shareholder, you go no because your stock increased in value because of that premium. Um, it was it was a good number, right? That has to be negotiated. Um, the both the companies have to look at things like internal cost of capital, shareholder value, um, rate of return, all that sort of stuff. So. Um, and for some reason, Slumberjay and Cameron didn't include me on their financials on this. But I don't know why, but <laughs> from the outside looking in, I think that's a fair number. Up next, number six, upstream bust meets downstream boom in Houston. The east side earns some respect. Yeah, we've talked about this a bunch, how uh, Houston is upstream-centric economy. If you come here right now and talk to people about oil and gas, they could tell you how horrible it is and everybody's laying off and that – you know, the industry's in a massive downhill, and it's not true. <laughs> Part of the industry is, but downstream is on fire. And that's what this article is about, that, um, uh, you know, a lot of cities have a, in North America have a, a, a basically an east side, west side mentality. And in Houston, um, you know, part of the city that you split along um, what's called Highway 59, which is basically the Energy Carta Galleria area, is all um, white-collar people that work in 
um, upstream. And so they're talking all doom and gloom. But on the west side, which is where, you know, west side and south of Houston, where all the refineries and petrochemical plants are, they're loving this. They can't hire people quick enough. There's money everywhere. Their markets are growing. And so, but you don't hear that in the news and you definitely don't see it in the culture of Houston, but it's here. So only part of the industry is, is hurting. You know, one of the big stories of, of 2015 is the fact that downstream's in a boom right now. The downstream refining and chemical plants in East Houston are enjoying a massive and unprecedented $50 billion construction boom. Yeah, that's not chump change, $50 billion. And that's just here in Houston. Yeah, and there's so many more plants going. Well, so you think about the Gulf Coast. You think about what's uh, the, the, the different ethylene crackers. You give me ethane crackers, right? Ethylene crackers, like Eth- in the Virginias and the Ohio. Yeah, that's area. what I'm talking I'm about. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so so yeah, this is this is this is just going to continue growing. Um I guess is well, let me let me not put an analysis um into your mind because I could be way wrong. <laughs> um, but in 2016 let's flip this around. This is an interesting thought because we keep talking about how oil prices are going to rebound. That's and in one of the reasons that, that downstream has been in such a boom is because of the low oil prices, because as you've explained to me and I explained to other people all the time, if you manufacture widgets and the cost of making a widget goes down 50%, what does that do for your profits? So will that slow any of the boom when oil prices start to recover? Yeah, of course, uh, but it will con- it will continue because the world of sixty to sixty five dollars a barrel oil is still extremely profitable for downstream. What was killing them was when it was eighty, eighty five, ninety, a hundred dollars a barrel, sixty five dollars a barrel. They're still making great money, and the nice thing is because they're making a ton of money now at this low crude price. They're investing in infrastructure, and these new refineries and these new petrochemical plants are much more efficient than what they had before. So they're setting themselves up for long term future success. So they're thinking, yeah. So, so, so they they they're thinking in terms of the cyclical nature, and they're saying, all right, well, we know this isn't going to last, so let's go ahead and invest in things that will that will make us profitable at sixty five, seventy five. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. The Economist explains everything you want to know about the Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, hot button subject, something that that we've we've got some pushback about on some things that we we talked about this year. But let's unpack it one more time. Yeah, regardless of where you how you feel in this politically, um, this is one of the um, major news stories of 2015. Is the sanctions that were placed on Iran because of their nuclear weapons program are in the process of being lifted, and that will allow their oil to enter the global market. Um, and there's a, a bunch of things around that. So, you know, people that are in upstream that don't understand the numbers go, oh, my God, it's going to make prices even lower. It's not enough to even tip the scale. Not yet. They have the potential because they have some great conventional reservoirs, but they don't have the technology or the money to tap into that. And because they're in a war-torn country, the infrastructure has gone. They have no pipelines, no terminals. This stuff's just been blown up. So it's a bunch of American and European companies, think Shell and Exxon and BP, are waiting for the sanctions to be lifted to go in and start helping. And when I say help, they're not doing it to be nice, although they are in some ways. They're also going to make money, which think about all the employees for these companies globally are going to now continue to have jobs, continue to make money to help build this infrastructure and help get these um, reservoirs online. Um, the crude they produce is a heavy crude. Once again, that's a, a market predominantly um, uh, in the Europe and in the U.S. The rest of the world likes a sweet crude. What I'm hoping is as their production goes online, we lift the crude export ban. 
and that will allow us to sell our sweet crude to the refineries in Central and South America. We can then buy their heavy crude and everybody's happy. Speaking of jobs, number eight, UK to create 8,000 oil and gas jobs. Yeah, so all the doom and gloom about all the layoffs, you don't hear in the news. And this is one of the major news articles of 2015 is that um, there's also a lot of hiring going on. And before we get into this article, I'm going to go back to the downstream. And we've talked about this a million times. But one of the constraints in downstream globally is there is a lack of skilled labor. There's not enough skilled labor to fill all the jobs. How cool is that, right? It, it's literally if we need more welders, pipe fitters, machinists, um, that sort of stuff. So the people that have those skill sets are guaranteed jobs for a very long period of time. Um, the U.S. and Europe, nobody's went to trade school for, for those things in, in 20 or 30 years. So now you're looking at uh, a lot of the um, third world economies who have a proliferation of welders and pipe fitters. You can see the boost in their economy because their people are going to be able to be employed, have well-paid jobs. Um, that that money is going to flow back into those local countries' economies, which can increase prosperity for everybody. So it's a, you know this industry does a lot of great stuff, including keeping a lot of people employed, which then drives prosperity and good times to a lot of countries. Um, you know, this is an article about if you look at the um, net losses in the UK oil and gas field and the net gains that basically you'll be up 8,000 uh, jobs. So that's um, a little bit lower than what's normal. But net, we're increasing the number of jobs in the oil and gas industry in the UK, even in this low crude price market. I think that's awesome. That's a great find. <laughs> I got to just give you props. That. That's a really great find. Number nine, gas prices could keep falling as oil prices reach lowest levels since the recession. Yeah, and in this article, when they're talking gas, they're talking about gasoline. So anybody in the U.S., if you filled up your car in, let's say, the, old, the last year or so, you've, you've noticed that gas is dirt cheap. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I run premium in my car because I have to, and I filled up just the other day, and it was two oh five a gallon. Regular is going for, I think, $1.77. I haven't seen those prices in, in almost 20 years. The nice thing about that is you're basically giving every American a pay raise, right? Because you've reduced the price of, of their their gasoline consumption. And a couple of things are happening. Now, we predicted that you were going to see um, the U.S. economy go in a roar because of this because people were going to take that cost savings, that basically that raise, and go spend it. And I was wrong, which I was surprised at. What people are doing in the U.S. are paying off debt with that money. They're not spending it. They're using it to get out of debt, which is actually better than spending it. So the boom in the economy didn't happen, but the economy is picking up at a good pace, at a very good pace. So you're seeing an increase in things like manufacturing jobs because the cost of transportation is much less. People are actually driving more. People are doing more short vacations. So you know because these low crude prices driving low gasoline prices, it's actually good for the U.S. economy in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm caught off because, because we're not supposed to talk about how low, low gas prices are a good thing on, uh, in this industry. Right. It, but you know, no, I disagree with that. People like to like stick their head in the ground, you know, like an ostrich. And that's not, no, that's not real. The reality is there's benefits to these low crude prices. Um, I do not like to see anybody lose their job, anybody being laid off. I, I'm not promoting that, but there are benefits. People see both sides of, of this low crude price environment. That's a really great point because it is the elephant in the room that we don't talk that that I have I have neglect not neglected but held back on bringing up. But and there are certain places in terms of LinkedIn groups or or Facebook groups or things like that where people would 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 be really angry at you because you see so many you know um, 
oh, give us another boom. You know, we'll, we won't waste this one or whatever, right? Yeah, I, I understand that. I wonder how much they bitch while they're filling up their car. <laughs> let's, let's, make, let's be honest. It's not a car, Mark. <laughs> yeah, in Texas, it's a truck. It's yeah, a big-ass truck. It's an F-150. It's an F-350 four-wheel drive dual cab that probably gets three miles a gallon. So, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Okay, number nine. Mexico energy bill to to end Pemex's monopoly on oil. Huge story. Yeah, this is a major news story of 2015 in the oil and gas industry. And there's two parts to this. So we're going to hit part one here. So first thing, if people don't know, Mexico nationalized its oil field uh, freaking 75 years ago. And basically only the nationalized oil company, Pemex, uh, was allowed to get oil on the ground and sell it. And so that didn't work out very well. Um, there's a lot of corruption in Pemex. So you have... The majority of the people in Mexico live at the poverty level. And then you have a very small percentage that live at the uh, rich level because of the corruption going on in Pemex. And, and, you know, people don't like me saying that. It's the truth. I've dealt with Pemex. I know Pemex. And it's not fair to the Mexican people. That oil and gas is theirs. It's in the land that they're walking on. It's not, it doesn't belong to a few rich people. And so Mexico's production started to decline because, quite honestly, between the corruption, the stealing of crude, and the lack of talent, they didn't know how to um, uh, keep production high from the reservoirs. And eventually it got to the point where the government had to go, look, we, we need some help because we can't do this. Um, the Mexican party that was against this did a very good job in the media in Mexico trying to portray that the president of Mexico was selling out to U.S. and was going to sell Pemex to the U.S. and then there would be no jobs in Mexico, which was not true. It's not what the president's trying to do. He got the government reform passed, which was historic. And basically what he's doing is saying, okay, the prime reservoirs, we still own that. The subprime reservoirs, we can lease those out to people like you know BP, Chevron, whoever wants to drill here, and we can actually now broker deals with the service companies, which we desperately need. We need Halliburton and Slumberjay and Baker to come here and help us with our well stimulation. Before, they couldn't do that. So the, the intent behind this was pure. The battle was fierce in Mexico because of a misguided public opinion, and the president actually won, and they actually moved forward in a very historic um, uh, legal documents to end Pemex's monopoly on the oil in Mexico. So that's the first half of the story, which is a major news driver for 2015. What's the second half? So the second half is when they went to implement it, nobody went and bid on anything. <laughs> it's, uh, I can't remember what the numbers are, but I mean, it was horrible turnout. Typically, like in the Gulf of Mexico, when the federal government opens up a block for bidding, you may have you know 20 to 50 people bid on it. I think in Mexico, when they opened up one of, the, one of the blocks to bid, I think they had, I think, 14 companies express some interest, and I think only two actually bid, and of those two, one pulled their bid back. So they're basically left with one person bidding on a block. Um, and the reason is multifold. The reason is even though they passed these reforms in Mexico legally, the business of doing – or the oil and gas business in Mexico is still full of corruption. So if you're a BP or a Chevron, you're not going to work in that world. That's, that's you're not going to do that. And so the, the Mexican government and the Mexican people have another step in order to make this happen. They need to start cleaning up the corruption. Um, and, and they're starting to do it. Unfortunately, the politics are a little bit different in Mexico than they are here in the U.S. Um, you know, basically, regardless of the, the you know, whether it's judicial or, um, you know, the federal government or the state government, um, we have police of the police, right? So who's ever enforcing our laws, there's another organization that's not related to them that makes sure they're doing it right. That doesn't happen in Mexico. It doesn't exist. So, for instance, the local police department can be, can be 
become corrupted by the drug cartels, and there's no federal marshals or FBI to come check and see if that's happening. Same way with the federal government, the federalities. If if they buy into corruption, there's no, um, you know, um, you know, federal bureau to go check into that. So the Mexican people have to uh, realize, and they do realize, that they need to reform this corruption environment of of their business world in order to get the major players into Mexico. Number ten is also Mex from Mexico. So let's let's jump right into that one. In in. I don't know if it's overlap or or no. That's just what I was talking about. It's that's number ten. Is the fact that um, you know the Mexican market went from being excited to being anxious because nobody bid on anything. <laughs> that and, and so in in so it's it's corruption, it's prices, it's all of these things tied into one. Yeah, I love Mexico. I have spent a lot of my youth in Mexico, especially the West Coast from uh, Puerto Vallarta to Acapulco. And, and at that time, it was probably the safest country in the world. They're all devout Catholics. You could be dropped off as a complete stranger, and the people wouldn't let anything happen to you. I got one of my favorite stories about Mexico. My wife and I, who wasn't even my wife at that time. She was my girlfriend. We were actually staying in Puerto Vallarta um, just as a vacation, and we are at a little cantina. And we met this group of guys and girls who were there for their cousin's wedding. And we started talking to them and started drinking and having a good time. And by the end of the night, not only had we been invited to their wedding, one of the women loaned my wife a dress. So, I mean, where else in the world? <laughs> How friendly is that? Where else in the world could you be where you meet total strangers and they invite you to a family wedding at the end of the night? It was wonderful. Unfortunately, that has changed. The people are still the same people, but because of the violence from the drug cartels, you know, I, I don't go to Mexico anymore. And, and that needs to change. It definitely needs to change. We have to change stories because we're gonna we're gonna bump up against our time here. We're going from from drinking on the beach in Mexico up to the Arctic. Shell ready to begin drilling for oil in the Arctic. Yeah, this, this happened a, and then didn't happen. So so let's talk about it. Yeah, this is a major news story on oil and gas for 2015. Um, you saw a lot of stuff in the press. Um, Shell spent a lot of money. The reality is, Shell was looking at is it economically viable to get. Uh, crude in the Arctic. The reservoirs are there. Um, they caught a lot of crap from the environmentalists, which were just ridiculous because they were protesting in kayaks made from the plastic from oil and gas. And they, went out, they went out and they, they put the infrastructure in place, right? They put all the capping, um, all the containment vessels. They built the, they spent the money to have that in place in case there was an accident. And then they went out and did some test wells. Um, you give it, you know, 12 months later, they figured out that it wasn't economically viable. And so Shell um, asked to, to withdraw their permit from the U.S. for Arctic drilling. Um, the permit being granted was a surprise even to me. Uh, Obama's administration granted it. But at the end, it, it was a typical Democratic administration. So when Shell pulled their permit, <laughs> then the Democratic administration, after they pulled the permit, said, okay, we're denying your permit. Well, they've already pulled their permit. They're not going to drill there. Um, but at least they figured out what they need to do to, to, to drill their environmentally responsibly and economically. Will it happen anytime soon? Not in this low cruise price environment. The Arctic drilling is more expensive than oil sands. So, um, you know, if oil ever gets back to $90 a barrel, then maybe you'll see some Arctic drilling by us. Uh, right now, it's just not economically viable, but it was a major news article for 2015. It was a major news article because, I listen, as you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and all kinds of media consumption on my end, and there were so many environmentalists, not even environmentalist activists, but just even people that are environmentally conscious, conscious, left-leaning, not that I want to go political, but 
they'll just mention in passing like, oh, that was a big victory for us. You know, I think I think we won that, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, oh, I, who was that? Oh, you know who it was? It was Tom York, who is the lead singer of Radiohead. He was on Alec Baldwin's uh, Here's the Thing show, which is a phenomenal show, by the way. Uh, it's a podcast. You can, you know, podcast it. But yeah, he was majorly involved in that. In in in, and I just had to chuckle a little bit because I'm like, oh, Tom, you just don't understand how the world works. But you make great music. Thank you, buddy. Um, so, all right, number number thirteen, update two: oil bosses to meet in latest climate change offensive. Offensive. Yeah. So um, a lot of the top oil companies, especially the European oil companies. Um, met in Paris actually this month, although this has been going on for about 18 months, to talk about climate change and, and what they're going to do to help um, limit the impact the oil and gas industry has to climate change. Now, one of the things that's noteworthy, if you actually read the list of, uh, of companies, it's BG Group, BP, NE, uh, Shell, Statoil, Total, they're missing a couple of big players. There's no Chevron there. There's no Exxon there. And in their own unique ways, both Exxon and Chevron said, look, this is bull. <laughs> You're just trying to pacify pacify the public and the environmentalists, that's not how you affect climate change. You do it by right engineering. So we're not joining your little climate thing. And that tells me a huge story about the validity of this. When Exxon and Chevron intentionally refuse not to participate, that means this is bogus. So, um, um, you know, the climate change went on, the talks went on. If you actually go read the transcripts, they agreed to nothing. Um, I, you know, it's... it's it, was I, a, it was a lot of song and dance is what you're saying? Yeah, and, you know, I like being transparent and honest. I wish these European oil and gas companies would go, look, this whole uh, two degrees Celsius warming, um, the amount of CO2, a lot of people don't know this, the amount of CO2 during the Jurassic period, you know, think of the movie Jurassic Park, those dinosaurs, was four times what it is now. So it's normal for us to have a higher CO2 level, right? Now, whether man is influencing that or not, we haven't figured that out yet. Um, but if man is influencing that, the way to fix that is with engineering, right? pull carbon out of the air, pump in the ground or, or whatever. And so I just really wish that the, these other oil and gas companies would be open and transparent and talk about the reality instead of caving into the environmentalists and worry about public opinion. And, and I get it, right? They have shareholder value they have to worry about. Um, that, you know, and, and nobody in this industry wants to damage the environment. Nobody does. Uh, but I just, I just think this is a little left base. But this is one of the major um, oil and gas news stories of 2015. And in this one, I have to give a tip of my hat, and I'm going to go ahead and, and call it on my own, and I'm going to say the the number one oil and gas book to come out in 2015 was Alex Epstein's The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And as soon as you said that about the climate, or I'm sorry, the CO2 levels in the Jurassic period, it immediately brought up one of the quotes, and I can't remember who it was, and I won't be able, I'll just be paraphrasing here, but it was it was from the late 1800s. And it was not a, an unimportant person, I guess I could say. And and he was writing saying, how, how, how great would it be if everything got warmer? Because then we could we, we could farm more and we could do this more and we could do that more. And, and now and now we're we have this perception. It, it, it's sort of an anti-human philosophy, um, not yeah, to go be, too far down that road. But it's got to it, be real careful with that. So global warming is a fact. So we have ice ages, right? Well, what's the opposite of an ice age? Well, warming. Warming. Right. That pendulum swings back and forth. What the environmentalists are saying is that man's activity is speeding up the swing of that pendulum, and there is no scientific proof that that's happening. The swinging of the pendulum is natural. 
but there's no proof that we sped up the swinging of that pendulum. Right. And I, I'm, I, all I'm saying is that, well, and, and this goes on with, with the next article maybe um, in terms of thinking of it, the way that we think about it, right? Now we think about it as catastrophic, but there, 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 there are people, you know, people, very intelligent people from past times who were excited about that, actually. Yeah, my big thing is in the 80s, everybody talked about it was a great global freeze. And these same weather environmentalist forecasters are now talking about global warming. It's like, really? Were you wrong then or are you wrong now? Well, I, I always just remember it's an old Drew Carey bit from from when way back, even before his sitcom and everything like that. And he's, of course, from Cleveland. And in, in he, would, he would say, he would say, you know, there's the what, what was that back back when they were talking about the ozone layer and everything like that in the, in the 90s uh, a lot. And he's like, I just stand out there with a can of aerosol. <laughs> like, I don't care. I don't care about my grandchildren. I'm cold now. <laughs> so global fossil fuel emissions predicted to decline for 2015. Number 14 of 2015. So take us through this. Yeah, so this is one of the top news stories of 2015 that naturally rolls off what we were just talking about. <clears throat> so the experts say that our CO2 emissions are going down globally. Our emissions in the U.S., our actual pollution, peaked in 1979. So think about things like acid rain, the smog over L.A., all that's gone. And it's gone because the oil and gas industry cleaned stuff up. Right? Our air and our water is much cleaner now than it was in 1979. Our CO2 emissions, which is everybody's talking about as far as uh, climate change, are going down. We're over that hump, right? So if you're worried about CO2 emissions, you have to worry about the developing economies, India and China specifically. Here in the U.S. and in Europe, we're, we're, we're going down, and, and we're doing it every year. So this is a, a great article showing how our impact on the environment is less and less because of the oil and gas industry. And unless anyone push back, this is not a Texas A&M story. This is oh. not from the University of Texas. This is from Stanford University in California, of all yeah. places. Yeah. So, and you would—they're very pro-environmental. So, for them to have to actually admit that the science says that our emissions would go down, it probably griped them. You know, they probably try to bury the story somewhere, but it's the truth. Yeah. So, so, so we put it up in lights as number fourteen of the twenty fifteen. So, those are all of our stories. I hope you enjoyed them i've i hope you've enjoyed this year we're 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 gonna be so this is episode 43 so we're under 10 we're gonna be at a year here pretty soon mark yeah how awesome is that it's it's been a long journey but it's been a great journey yeah especially for you because this is this is you've actually made me do something consistently once a week (laughs) (laughs) so so it's especially taxing on you so thank you for for that this has been a great year thank you to everyone for listening we we are only going to keep you know growing and having a great time. Uh, of course, we have the the new show that that we released uh, a few weeks ago by now, which is the Oil and Gas Careers podcast. If you haven't heard of that one yet, go ahead and and Google that or search for it in iTunes. It's the show for anyone looking for a career in the oil field or in the oil business, as I say on the show, and and much prosperity to everyone in 2016. What are your closing remarks? 
Yeah, let's do something special for our listeners before we get out of here. Courtesy of Red Wing, our sponsor, we have these awesome offshore bags that we're going to give away. We're going to give away one a week, give away every Friday, and all you have to do is go enter your name, your company, your email address to win. James will give you a link. These bags are super cool. We're going to have some video out pretty soon so you can see what they look like. Now, they're designed to fit in a helicopter, but they'll they'll work as equally behind the rear seat of your F-350 or carrying you know supplies to your office. So take a look. Great bags, um, easy to win, and, um, and and go to the link James gives you, and let's put one of these bags in your hands. Yeah, so no purchase necessary to enter or win. See official rules at redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's that's where you go to put in your info, redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. And we can't thank Red Wing enough for their support. We can't thank you enough for your support and listening and and. I did all of that, Mark. You must have some other things you'd like to add before we get out of here for the year. Yeah, I just want to say Merry Christmas, everybody, and Happy New Year. And we love, love, love the fact that you've listened to us. Thank you so much for making this year a great year for both James and I. So, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. From the top.